Well, has anyone else noticed that you can be the most sane and considerate person? Like you can be having the best day ever and then find out someone has either made fun of your kids or hurt your kids. And all of a sudden you understand what David was praying in the Psalms about God wiping out his enemies with a consuming fire, leaving nothing but ash and dust behind, right? I mean, if someone hurts your kids, makes fun of your kids, right? You can turn into, you know, the rage monster from Dude Perfect, right? You can turn into that rage monster. Like, I know I'm a pastor, but, but I'm a dad too. And uh, this semester, like this past spring, my son Levi was with a big group of his friends. They were all over at somebody's house. And one of the kids in the group told Levi, it must suck to be the son of a pastor, and he had no idea what to say. He was just struck. He didn't say anything. It was kind of quiet and awkward and weird for a moment. He didn't say anything. I'll tell you what I would have said. Actually, I can't tell you what I would have said. Um, but I wanted to take that kid and humiliate him so bad that he felt it for the rest of his life. You know what I'm talking about? Like any other parents like that? Like you turn into the, 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 the rage monster years ago, someone, a, a little kid in Nixon's class, just a little, you know, boy hurt her and trapped her behind a door and he thought it was funny. And I was like, what's his name? You know, I can take him. I think I can take him, you know? I mean, we turn into rage monsters when someone messes with our kids, when someone hurts our kids. Well, God the Father is going to watch his son be treated unfairly, unjustly, abused, beaten, mocked, have nails driven through his hands and his feet. What would you do if someone treated your son or daughter like that? How would you respond? And if you're a parent in the room, maybe, just maybe, you get just a little bit of a glimpse of why there's a place called hell. Today in Luke chapter 23, we're going to see the son of God treated in a shocking way, shocking. And if you're a parent, you can only imagine what this must've been like for, for Mary or for God the father to watch his only son treated in such a way. Luke chapter 23. Three. We are in a verse by verse, chapter by chapter study of the gospel of Luke. We find ourselves now at the end of Luke and we've been challenging you to study the gospel of Luke with us, like not just in here, but in our small groups. Now's a great time to get into one of our city groups. If you're not in one of our small group Bible studies, we call them city groups. You can sign up for one of those on our app with the connect form and just say that you're interested in city groups and Pastor Brandon will be in touch and help you find a group. But it's in those groups where we study the scripture together. We've been studying these verses together. We challenge you to study the gospel of Luke through our daily devotionals. Those are on our app under the Bible study tab on our app. You can go to daily devotionals Monday through Friday. We're gonna break down these same verses this next week. And we've challenged you to discuss the gospel of Luke together as a family using the table talk. The table talk is a Bible study resource under the Bible study tab on our app. 
And we call it the table talk because we're challenging families to get around a table and talk about what you studied today in the Gospel of Luke because your kids right now and our students right now are studying these same exact passages today. And so the table talk brings a family together to talk about what they learned in church and how God was speaking to them. Right now, in this moment, I'm gonna challenge you to get out our app. Uh, It's called the City Church Lubbock. You can download it in our app store, click message notes, and you can follow along there. The verses, the points, it's all there. That's a great way to stay engaged in our time together. Because see here, one or two things is going to happen today. You're going to sit back and watch me as if this is theater or as if I'm some sort of entertainer, and I'm not. I I won't entertain you, okay? Uh, uh, And you'll sit back. You'll be expecting for this to be some sort of form of entertainment. It's not, you're gonna get bored and you're gonna go to sleep. That's one response. The other response is you lean in, you engage, you study the scripture with us, right? You don't just watch, you, you study too, and you might just find God speaking to you today. And you're gonna leave changed because you spent time with God and you heard from God. And so I challenge you, lean in and engage in our time together. Now, I want to remind you, we preach verse by verse, chapter by chapter at our church for many reasons. But one reason is to get you off of meme theology that we find on social media, Facebook, uh, tweet theology, Instagram theology, bumper sticker theology. We're even trying to wean us off of devotional level theology because typically devotionals just kind of make your Christian life all about you. And when you study the Bible verse by verse, you're going to find the Bible's a lot more about the glory and fame of Jesus than it is about you. And so we study the scripture here verse by verse because we also believe it's going to be more effective at producing disciples of Jesus, at producing a remnant people that remain faithful to God and his word in spite the direction the culture is headed. And so we find ourselves now at the end of a two-year journey. Some of you are like, it's been two years. Others of you have been like, I feel like it's been 10 years that we've been in the gospel of Luke. Well, our church is only five years old, so it can't have been 10 years. All right. So two years, we've been going through the gospel of Luke. We are at the end. We are going to be finishing the gospel of Luke over the next couple of weeks. And so we have been, if you've been here, you know, we've been in passion week, holy week. Now, not like today in our calendar, but in Luke 22 and in Luke 23, we find ourselves in Passion Week and Holy Week. And so a couple of months ago, we talked about Palm Sunday. We said it should be called Donkey Sunday, right? Um, we talked about Holy Monday, where Jesus goes and flips the table and, and, and the money exchange tables at the temple. He begins to exert his authority. His authority is challenged, and he answers questions and challenges from the Pharisees and the Sadducees, right? On Wednesday, we saw that Judas agreed to betray Jesus. On Thursday, we saw the Last Supper, and Jesus predict Peter's denial. And then we saw Jesus praying in the garden, his arrest and Peter's actual denial of Christ. Today, we are on Holy Friday, or Good Friday, and we're going to see Jesus on trial, and then the beating, mocking, and crucifixion of Jesus Christ. So Luke chapter 23, starting in verse one. Would you read along with me? And the verses will be on the screen as well. The entire council, this is the Sanhedrin, These are the religious rulers of the day. They took Jesus to Pilate. He's been arrested. That was last week. They're taking him to Pilate, the Roman governor. Now, stop there. Pilate has been what's called a friend of Caesar. That's an official title. It's like a designation. As a friend of Caesar, it means you're loyal to Caesar. It means you're a defender of Caesar. And Pilate has been a friend of Caesar, but he's not anymore. 
right? He, he hadn't led well. He's kind of at the bottom of the barrel now in his career, and, and he's not considered to be a, an official friend of Caesar. He wants this title back. It's important to remember this for later because the Sanhedrin, these religious leaders, they're going to use that against him, right? They're going to manipulate him with his desire to be a friend of Caesar once again. In John 18, it says that Pilate turns to Jesus because they brought him to Jesus to be tried. And he turns to Jesus and he says, what what evil has he committed? Try him yourself. This is some sort of religious dispute. So so try him yourself. And so verse two, Luke 23, the, the, the crowd, the Sanhedrin, they begin to state their case. This man has been leading our people astray by telling them not to pay their taxes to the Roman government. If you've been here, you know that's true. That's, that, or that's false. That's a lie. He, he did not tell them that. They said, and by claiming that he is the Messiah, a king. That is true. He has claimed to be the Messiah, the king of kings and Lord of lords. Verse three, so Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus replied, you have said it. Now, if you've been here, you kinda, this, you, 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 you've seen Jesus' kind of cryptic responses here. It's like, yes, you said it, or yes, it is as you say. We saw that last week a little bit. It's Jesus affirming what they're saying, but saying it's so much bigger and different than you think that means, right? Like, yes, but you don't even understand what you're saying. Like, it's so much deeper and bigger than even what you're talking about. And so he says, yes, it is as you say. It's a way of saying, it's like a colloquialism. It's a way that you would say, yeah, but you don't even understand what you think. You don't even understand what you're saying. Like, you don't don't process or get all that's meant by that, uh, being the king of the Jews. So the crowd here, the Sanhedrin, they've got to get Pilate to think that Jesus is a dangerous revolutionary. This isn't just some religious dispute, right? That he's a threat to Caesar. So that Pilate, desperate for his image, right? Desperate for his reputation, desperate for this title to come back to him as a friend of Caesar, the defender of Caesar, so that his career might advance. He's got to appear loyal to Caesar and to Rome. Well, in John 18, when Pilate asks, are you the king of the Jews? John records Jesus saying this, I came into the world to testify the truth and all who love the truth recognize I am who I say that I am. So Jesus says, if you seek truth, you're going to find that I am who I claim to be, right? Now, if you just want to play games, because you wanna keep living your life how you want to live it, right? You just kinda wanna keep doing and and maybe just add Jesus onto another book on the shelf or kinda in addition to the rest of your library of like religious and philosophic thinking or whatever. Like if you're not after truth, then you're not going to really find Jesus is who he says he is. But Jesus is, if you care about truth, if you're a seeker of truth, like regardless of what it costs you, you're going to end up finding out that I am who I say I am. And so Jesus is invite, Jesus invites seekers of truth. But when you seek the truth, you have to go where the evidence leads, regardless of what it means for you and regardless of what it costs you. And so Jesus says, if you seek the truth, you're gonna find out I am who I claim to be. Well, Pilate is the just consummate politician and his response in John 18 is, what is truth? Because to a politician, truth is whatever they say it is, right? 
It's, it's whatever like benefits their own career. And so Pilate, the great politician that he is, well, well, what's truth? You see, Pilate is thinking that Jesus' claim here is a religious or a philosophic claim rather than a political claim or a military claim. And so he, he doesn't feel that this trial comes under his jurisdiction. He thinks they should just handle it as a religious dispute. Verse four, so Pilate turned to the leading priests and to the crowd and said, I find nothing wrong with this man. They became insistent. He is causing riots by teaching wherever he goes, by his teaching wherever he goes, all over Judea, from Galilee to Jerusalem. Oh, Pilate said, he's a Galilean. When they said that he was, Pilate sent him to Herod Antipas because Galilee was under Herod's jurisdiction. And Herod happened to be in Jerusalem at that time for the Passover. So under pressure, Pilate does what any politician does, right? Passes the buck. Let someone else handle it, right? This is a tough situation. This is a tough call. I don't want to be held accountable. I don't want to be held responsible. So I'll pass the buck on to someone else. So if they fumble it, if they screw it up, it doesn't look bad on me. And so when Pilate discovers that Jesus is a Galilean, he sends Jesus over to Herod and is thinking, let's let the Jewish leader, let's let the Jewish ruler decide this matter. Let him take the heat. Let him deal with the pressure. Well, Herod is your classic pagan. He's what's called an Edomite, which means he's from the tribe of Esau. Remember Jacob and Esau? Esau, the one that wanted what he had right now in front of him rather than trusting God with the promise, right? He traded what he wanted most for what he needed and what he felt like he needed right now. It's a carnal, very fleshly, carnal, pagan people, immoral people. And this is where Herod comes from. His father was the one that tried to kill Jesus when he was a baby. This Herod, Herod Antipas, is the one that had John the Baptist beheaded when John the Baptist said something that he didn't like. When John the Baptist confronted him in his sin, Herod had him beheaded. So this is that same Herod. Verse eight, Herod was delighted at the opportunity to see Jesus because he had heard about him and had been hoping for a long time to see him perform a miracle. He asked Jesus question after question, but Jesus refused to answer. You see, Herod likes talking about religious things. He's entertained by religious things, and Herod is hoping for a show. This guy's a miracle worker, right? He wants a show. Dance, monkey. Perform a miracle. Let me see it, right? That's, he's entertained, wants to be entertained by Jesus. Herod's hoping for a show. He's been longing to see Jesus work miracles. But Jesus is not the entertainer that Herod is looking for. Jesus doesn't cave. He doesn't give in to Herod's whims for a miracle. And the same thing is true for us. A lot of us, maybe right even now in this moment, like we're here to kind of go through the religious entertainment, if you will. And we want Jesus to dance for us. I'm a follower of Jesus because I want him to do what I want for me. But when he doesn't do what I want, when I want it, we throw a fit. Well, Herod doesn't like that Jesus won't answer his questions. And so he throws a robe on him and he begins to mock him. Verse 10. Meanwhile, 
The leading priests and the teachers of religious law stood there shouting their accusations. Then Herod and his soldiers began mocking and ridiculing Jesus. Finally, they put a royal robe on him to to mock him and they sent him back to Pilate. And it was at that day, Herod and Pilate, who had been enemies before, became friends that day. Herod thought that Pilate kind of acknowledged him and his leadership by sending Jesus over to him. But here's now, Jesus has been tried five times both religiously and now civilly five times. And he's been found innocent every time, fulfilling what the scripture says, he was innocent. And there was no sin in him. Nobody could find anything wrong with Jesus. Verse 13, then Pilate called together the leading priests and other religious leaders along with the people. And he announced his verdict. You brought this man to me, accusing him of leading a revolt. I've examined him him thoroughly on this point in your presence and find him innocent. Herod came to the same conclusion and sent him back to us. Nothing this man has done calls for the death penalty. So I will have him flogged and then I will release him. Matthew gives us some insight to what happens next in Matthew chapter 27. It says that the Sadducees began stoking the crowd. They began, you know, riling up the crowd by saying, look at him, he's no king. He tricked you. He said he was the Messiah, the, the, the anointed one. But look at him, he's just a man. He, he's, he, he's, been, he's been arrested. If he was who he said he is, he would have risen up in power, overthrown the Roman government and not allowed himself to be treated this way. So the Sadducees began stoking the crowd saying, he lied to you. He isn't who he said he is. He hasn't done what we wanted when we wanted it and how we wanted it done. So he must not be who he said he is. And they began stoking and riling up the crowd. In verse 17 of Luke chapter 23, it says that it was Passover and each year at Passover, the Roman empire would release one felon. It was the call of the crowd to determine what felon would be released. So in verse 18, then a mighty roar rose from the crowd. They've been stoked up by the Sadducees. They've been riled up. So they're, 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 they're angry. They're upset. Jesus isn't who he said he was. He isn't who he claimed to be. And so their voice is rising. And it says, with one voice, they shouted, kill him and release Barabbas to us. Barabbas was in prison for taking part in an insurrection in Jerusalem against the government and for murder. So the same crowd on Palm Sunday, on Donkey Sunday, that waved those branches and said, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That was a royal pronouncement. They believed that that Jesus was the Messiah, that he was the king that had been prophesied, the anointed one that the prophets had said would come. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They don't get what they want. They don't get it when they want it. And it's not how it's supposed to look. And the same crowd that said, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord is now crying out, kill him, kill him. You see what happens when religious people don't get what they want, when they want it and how they want it? We turn on him just like that, right? It's exactly what's happened with the crowd. And they call for Barabbas to be released, a murderer, instead of Jesus. Verse 20, Pilate argued with him because he wanted to release 
Jesus. But they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. For the third time he demanded, why? What crime has he committed? I found no reason to sentence him to death. So I will have him flogged, that's beaten, that's scourged, it's whipped, and then I will release him. So John 19, again, gives us some background as to what happens next before the the next passage in Luke. In John chapter 19, it says they scourged him. They took him into the back area and they scourged him. They whipped him. They beat him. Now, in March of 1986, the Journal of American Medical Association, or it's called JAMA, had a team of three, including a pathologist from the Mayo Clinic, and the study, uh, they studied the effects of scourging and crucifixion on its victims. And here's what they said. The usual instrument was a short whip with several single or braided leather thongs of variable lengths in which small iron balls or sharp pieces of sheep bone were tied at intervals. The man was stripped of his clothing and his hands were tied to an upright post. The back, the buttocks, and the legs were flogged. The scourging was intended to weaken the victim to a state just short of collapse or death. As the Roman soldiers repeatedly struck the victim's back with full force, the iron balls would cause deep contusions and the leather thongs and sheet bones would cut into the skin and subcutaneous tissues. Then as the flogging continued, the lacerations would tear into the underlying skeletal muscles. This was the procedure that prepared you for crucifixion. So they beat Jesus in John 19, and it says they put a robe on him. And then they blindfolded him. And then they began to punch him and beat him with their fists. They gave him a wood scepter, wood stick as a scepter to mock him. They formed a crown of thorns and they shoved it down over his head. They brought him back out to the crowd. And again, Pilate showing him to be no king says, behold the man, your king, look at him. Beaten, bloody, maimed, with a mocking robe around his shoulders, with a crown of thorns on his head and with a wood stick in his hand for a scepter. Behold your king. Verse 23. But the mob shouted louder and louder, demanding that Jesus be crucified and their voices prevailed. In John chapter 19, they would say he claims to be the son of God and our laws say he must die for that blasphemy. Well, now Pilate's a little nervous. We've gone from him being a king of the Jews to him learning that Jesus has claimed to be the son of God. Now Pilate's a little nervous and we find that in in, in John more than any other place because then Pilate takes Jesus back and says, where are you from? Like, who who are you really? Where, Where did you come from? See, Pilate's a Greek and he's thinking, maybe this is Apollos or some other God that's come down from Olympus and taken on flesh and has been walking among us. Pilate's a little concerned now. Who are you? Where, where, where are you from? Pilate wanted to release him. 
And it's in this moment, the crowd calls out, if you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar. Remember that title? Pilate wants it back. He's got to be known as a friend of Caesar, as a defender of Caesar. And the crowd's shouting, if you release him, you will not be a friend of Caesar. But at the same time, Pilate's scared. What, what, if, what if Jesus is who he says he is? And I hand him over to be crucified. What will God do to me if I treat him like this? And so Pilate has to answer a question that every single person that's ever lived on this planet has had to answer. And every single person, every single one of you right now in this room, he answers a question that every single one of you have to answer. Do I lose my life and give up everything for this man? Because I believe he is who he says he is. And maybe in giving up my life, I truly find it. Or do I deny him? Hold on to my life. Hold on to my career. Hold on to my way. Reject him and maybe lose my life forever if he ends up being who he claims to be. It's a question every single person that's ever lived on the face of this planet has to answer. And it's a question every single last one of us in this room must answer. Do I give up my life and my way for this guy because I believe he is who he says he is? I give up everything for him to follow him. Not show up to church once a week. The call to be a disciple of Jesus is if, do I give up my life to pursue and know this man with everything I've got? Do I give up my life to follow him? Because I believe he is who he says he is, believing that in giving up my life, I will find real life. Or do I hold on to my life? And in holding on to my life and my way and my pride, reject the son of God, gambling that he isn't who he said he is. And hopefully not being punished for all eternity for the grave mistake that I've made. It's the most important question you will ever answer in this lifetime. What do I do with Jesus? If he is who he says he is, then he's God in the flesh and he's the only way to heaven. Or he's a liar or a lunatic. There's no other option. He's not a good teacher. He's not a good philosopher. A 
good teacher, a good philosopher wouldn't walk around claiming to be the son of God. It's why his own family thought he was losing his mind. He's either telling the truth or he's a liar, a lunatic. There's no other option. And so Pilate is wrestling with this question in this moment, as you, I'm sure you can imagine. What, what, what do I do? Pilate makes his decision. He brings Jesus out to the crowd and he says, here's your king. And John 19 says, the leading priests cry out. These are the religious people of the, these are the religious leaders of Jesus's day. And it says when Pilate brings Jesus out and he says, behold, here is your king. That the leading priest cry out, we have no king but Caesar. What a statement. We have no king but Caesar. In that moment, they bow down to the idol so that they can hold on to their power, their position, their lives. Verse 24, so Pilate sentenced Jesus to die as they demanded. As they had requested, he released Barabbas, the man in prison for insurrection and murder, but he turned Jesus over to them to do as they wished. Barabbas was a man who had been judged worthy of the death penalty. But the people demanded that the one who was truly guilty of the charges be released and the one proven innocent be killed instead. So watch this. It's the innocent who dies in the place of the guilty. Sound familiar? Barabbas is a picture of every single one of us. A guilty man deserving of death set free because an innocent man in Christ dies in his place. And that's the gospel. You are guilty. You have broken God's law. You deserve to be separated from God forever. It's the fine for your sin because you've broken God's law. You're guilty. But because an innocent man died in your place, you can be set free if you give your life to Jesus. Verse 26, as they led Jesus away, a man named Simon, who was from Cyrene, happened to be coming in from the countryside and the the soldiers seized him and put the cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. A large crowd trailed behind, including many grief-stricken women. But Jesus turned to them and said, Daughters of Jerusalem, don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. For the days are coming when they will say, fortunate indeed are the women who are childless, the wombs who have not borne a child and the breasts that have never nursed. People will beg the mountains, fall on us, and they will plead with the hills, bury us. For if these things are done when the tree is green, what will happen when it's dry? So, so Jesus being led away to the cross and there's women that are weeping behind him, and Jesus turns to them and says, if you understood all that was happening right now, all that's been going on, you wouldn't be weeping for me, you would be weeping for yourselves and for your nation because of the judgment that's about to come upon their nation. Jesus is once again prophesying the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, which is exactly what happened. And if you've been here for Luke, you, 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 you went through that with us as Jesus has already prophesied that Rome would come in and surround them and lay siege to Jerusalem and it would get nasty inside the walls of that city. It would get barbaric. 
What happened in 70 AD is called the first Jewish Holocaust where many estimate over a million Jews died in horrific, horrific ways. So Jesus is saying here, you think my judgment's bad. I'm good and innocent. You should feel bad for the evil who will be judged by God. Like Jesus is basically saying, like if God does this in judging his own son for the sake of forgiveness of sins, what will his judgment look like on those who reject his offer? What will God's judgment look like on those who have rejected the son who was beaten and crucified for them and was put on that cross by their sin? You think what happened to Jesus is bad. Jesus is saying, you think what happens to me is bad. Imagine being the person that treated the son of God this way. Imagine being the person whose sin put Jesus on that cross but rejecting his offer of forgiveness and thereby incurring the wrath of God for all eternity. So Jesus, listen, uh, if you really understood what was going on, you'd be weeping for yourselves. What's happening, Jesus is saying, is a tragedy, but it's not his death necessarily. It's those who reject him and fail to choose deliverance, life, and forgiveness. Jesus is saying here, the failure to choose correctly about him has grave and eternal consequences. Verse 32. Two others, both criminals, were led out to be executed with him. And when they came to a place called the skull, they nailed him to the cross. And the criminals were also crucified, one on the right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And the soldiers gambled for his clothes by throwing dice. That same JAMA article described the nails going into a victim's wrists in this way. The driven nail would crush or sever the rather large sensory motor median nerve. The stimulated nerve would produce excruciating bolts of fiery pain in both arms as Jesus was crucified. But the ultimate reason a person died on the cross, the cause of death would be asphyxiation suffocating to death because the Romans were so good at what they did through crucifixion. You could be on a cross for days enduring all the pain for those three days. You would eventually suffocate. You see, once the victim was on the cross, they'd want to take the pressure off of their nailed feet. And so to do this, they would pull up on their hands where the nails had gone into their wrists. In the down position, you, you could barely breathe. And so the victim would push up on those nails to take the pressure off their hands and to get a breath. The first several times you would do this, pushing up on those nails to get a breath, it would cause intense pain because the nail would tear through your flesh until it began to lodge against a bone. The victim would be seen pushing up quite often and then returning to the down position over and over and over again, sometimes for as much as three days, just to get a breath. 
eventually your body wearing out and you would suffocate. And so when Jesus prays, Father, forgive them, it's not forgiving their sin. Jesus is crying out for grace that God doesn't incinerate the earth and everyone in it for all of eternity for how they are treating the son of God. As a parent, I'm sure you can imagine. Once again, what you would want to do to a people who treated your child like this. Verse 35, the crowd watched and the leader scoffed. He saved others, they said. Let him save himself if he really is God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers mocked him too by offering him a drink of sour wine. They called out to him, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. A sign was fastened above him with these words. This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals hanging beside him scoffed. So you're the Messiah, are you? Prove it by saving yourself and us too while you're at it. But the other criminal protests. Don't you fear God? Even when you've been sentenced to die, we deserve to die for our crimes, but this man hasn't done anything wrong. And then he said to Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus replied, I assure you, today you will be with me in paradise. Most people in the crowd, the, the soldiers, they're all Pilate, Herod, they're all mocking Jesus. Jesus said, broad is the road that leads to destruction and many are on it. And we're finding that to be true as these scenes unfold, that most people are mocking Jesus, but there's one, a criminal on a cross besides Jesus that sees and believes. Jesus said, narrow is the road to life and very few find it. This, this one man and a crowd of people who are mocking him, this one man sees the road to life, the narrow road to life through Jesus and he cries out to be saved. And it's because of his faith that Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. Not because he did better and try harder, he died that day. He, he wasn't going anywhere to do better and to try harder. He, he, he was never baptized. He never took the Lord's Supper. He never got to go to church. He never gave a dime. He prayed probably one prayer in his life. Jesus saved me. And Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. None of those things save you. Doing better and trying harder will not make you right before God. This thief had no time to go do better and to try harder. But he was perhaps the greatest theologian that's ever existed. He tells his buddy on the other cross, don't you fear God? We're sinners. We've, we've broken the law. We deserve to die for our crimes. We're lawbreakers and we deserve to die. But that man has done nothing wrong. And so he turns to Jesus. He says, remember when, when you come into your kingdom, confessing that he understands and realizes Jesus is gonna die, but he's gonna rise again and he's gonna return one day and he's gonna return as the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He, he's confessing that Jesus is going to conquer sin and death and come back and return one day as King. But he gets one thing wrong. He's thinking that maybe one day when Jesus returns, 
He'll be able to join him when Jesus returns into his kingdom. But Jesus says, no, 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 no. Today. Today. You will be with me in paradise. Not one day. Today. The scripture says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. If you're a believer, that moment that you die, the next second you open your eyes, you are in heaven with Jesus. Today, Jesus says, you will be with me in paradise. But can you just picture, the, the, just, just try to get your mind around the depth of perception this criminal has on the cross compared to all these religious leaders that cannot see Jesus for who he is. It's the criminal on the cross that gets it right. He's the one on the narrow road that leads to life. Everyone else is on that broad road headed to destruction. Verse 44, by this time, it was about noon and darkness fell across the whole land until three o'clock. The light from the sun was gone and suddenly the curtain in the sanctuary of the temple was torn down the middle and then Jesus shouted, Father, I entrust my spirit into your hands and with those words, he breathed his last. In Exodus, the law said that every day the nation of Israel would offer a sacrifice in the morning and in the afternoon. A perfect spotless lamb would die and would be put on the mercy seat. The blood of that animal would be put on the mercy seat of God so that the sin of the nation might be covered so that God wouldn't wipe them out in his wrath for breaking his laws. Every day, the law said, the priests would offer up a sacrifice, 9 a.m., 3 p.m., 9 a.m., 3 p.m., every day, so that the sin of the nation might be atoned for. 9 a.m., 3 p.m., every day. And when that sacrifice was made, a shofar would blow. It's a ram's horn, and it would sound like a trumpet, announcing the lamb's sacrifice at 9 a.m. and 3 p.m., and when that shofar, like a trumpet, would blow, all the nation would bow down and worship as they knew a perfect spotless lamb was dying in their place for their sin. 9 a.m., 3 p.m. 9 a.m., 3 p.m. Every day, shofar, ram's horn, would blow. And that ram's horn would remind the nation that when Abraham took Isaac up on this same exalt mountain that Jesus is on right now, and Abraham would offer Isaac up as a sacrifice, and God would stop him and say, Abraham, don't touch your boy. There's a ram caught over here in the, in the thicket. And Abraham would take that ram slaughter it on the altar as a sacrifice to God. That ram died in Isaac's place so that Isaac could go free. Every day, 9 a.m., 3 p.m., that ram's horn would blow, reminding the nation 
that a perfect spotless lamb is dying in their place for their sin, just like that ram that was caught in the thicket died in Isaac's place so that Isaac might live, so that Isaac might go free. That ram died in his place, and they're being reminded of this at 9 a.m., 3 p.m. every day as a perfect spotless lamb would die in their place, shofar blows, they bow down. For hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, this would happen every single day. And Mark says, the gospel of Mark says that on this day, Jesus is crucified at nine, shofar blows. He dies at three, shofar blows. Reminding the nation, a perfect spotless sacrifice is dying in your place for your sin. If you've been here for our study of Luke, you know that Josephus, the Jewish historian, has estimated that nearly two million Jews are in Jerusalem and the surrounding area right now making their pilgrimage for Passover. Two million Jews hearing that ram's horn blow at 9 a.m., and 3 p.m. as Jesus died in the exact same place where that ram died in the place of Isaac. Maybe, just maybe, some would remember what Psalm 22 would say about the suffering servant, what Isaiah 53 would say about the suffering servant, that the Messiah would be led like a lamb to the slaughter. And he wouldn't die for his own sin, Isaiah would prophesy. He'll die for the sin of his people. Isaiah 53 would say, we all like sheep, we've all gone astray, we've each gone our own way, but the Lord has laid on him, the Messiah, that perfect spotless sacrifice, the Lord has laid on him the sin of us all. 9 a.m. and 3 p.m. The other gospel accounts say that Jesus would say before he died, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus has never experienced that that broken relationship that sin brings to a relationship with God. Jesus has never experienced that before. And so in this moment, Jesus, again, quoting a suffering servant prophecy, says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Other gospel accounts say that before Jesus died, he said, it's finished. It's the Greek word to telestai. It's finished. All the law and the prophets and the Psalms, they're, they're, they've all been leading to this moment, pointing to this moment. It's finished. It's fulfilled. All the righteous requirements of the law had been met for the very first time ever. No man had ever been able to perfectly fulfill the righteous requirements of the law. They were all lawbreakers. But now this man has met all the righteous requirements of the law. It's finished. It's finished. Hebrews would say, he died for your sin once and for all time. There's there's no more punishment for sins that are left to be had because Jesus has paid for your sin in full through his death on the cross. He's fully satisfied the wrath of God for your sin and my sin. And so Jesus cries out, it's finished, telestai, which means in Greek to be paid in full. It means that your punishment for sin, my punishment for sin, 
has been paid in full through the cross of Christ. Luke says the curtain of the temple was torn in two. This, this curtain uh, was not some delicate piece of fabric. It, it's a very heavy item with layer upon layer of folded fabric. It would have been next to impossible to tear by natural means or, or to tear from top to bottom for that matter. Luke saying God has obviously torn the curtain in this temple. The function of the curtain was to keep people outside the holy of holies. The veil symbolized the barrier between God's holiness and a polluted human race. And that veil was torn apart, showing that a time of judgment had come upon the nation, showing that Jesus has made a new and living and eternal way into the presence of God, into a relationship with God, and symbolizing the end of the old covenant. There's no more need for a priesthood because we have an eternal high priest in Jesus. There's no more need for the sacrificial system because Jesus is our once and forever sacrifice for sin. Verse 47, when the Roman officer seeing the execution saw what had happened, he worshiped God and said, surely this man was innocent. And when all the crowd that came to see the crucifixion saw what happened, they went home in deep sorrow. But Jesus' friends, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching. So now his betrayer, Judas, if you were here last week, his judge, Herod and Pilate, and now his executioner are admitting that Jesus is innocent and he's done nothing wrong. Jesus' worst enemies have all admitted that he's without sin. He's done nothing wrong. He's innocent. Well, because Passover day is approaching, the Jews would ask Rome, the Roman soldiers, to go along with these clubs. They were basically like baseball bats and break the legs of those being crucified so that they would die quicker. Passover was coming. They couldn't have dead bodies out on crosses decomposing. They couldn't work on the Sabbath. And so they would ask the Romans to, to, to go and to break the legs of those being crucified. And so the Roman soldiers took these clubs like a baseball bat and they go up to the first criminal. They break his legs. He can't stand up anymore. They go to the second criminal. They break his legs. He can't stand up anymore. They come to Jesus and they find that Jesus is already dead. So they put the club down and they get a spear instead to make sure Jesus is dead. They stab him with a spear. It goes all the way into his heart. Jesus is dead. And it fulfilled what the prophets had said, not a bone in his body will be broken, but they will look on the one in whom they have pierced. Verse 50, now there was a good and righteous man named Joseph. He was a member of the Jewish high council. That's the Sanhedrin. But he had not agreed with the decision and actions of the other religious leaders. He's from the town of Judea and he was waiting for the kingdom of God to come. He went to Pilate and asked for Jesus's body. Then he took the body down from the cross and wrapped it in a long sheet of linen cloth and laid it in a new tomb that had been carved out of rock. This was done late on Friday afternoon, the day of preparation, as the Sabbath was about to begin. As his body was taken away, the women from Galilee followed and saw the tomb where his body was placed. Then they went home and prepared spices and ointments to anoint his body. But by the time they were finished, the Sabbath had begun, and so they rested as required by 
the law. This man, Joseph, he was a member of the Sanhedrin, but he didn't consent to their plan and he played no part in the conspiracy. He was obviously already a believer and it's said that he was waiting for the kingdom of God. He had been holding on to the Old Testament prophecies about the coming of a king, about the coming of a suffering servant, of a Messiah, and he obviously recognized that the king had indeed come in the person of Jesus. So two Shocking conclusions to everything that we've just read. And here's the first one. Number one, the created kills the creator. The created kills their creator. You see, neutrality isn't really an option when it comes to Jesus's life and claims. People either hated him or they love him because you understand who Jesus claims to be. You either hate him or You love him. And they hated him. They couldn't stand Jesus because of who he claimed to be. And in Acts 2, Peter preaching to the same crowd that said, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, now crucify him. Peter's now preaching to this same crowd in Acts chapter 2. And he says this, you killed him. God has made him both Lord and Christ, but you killed him. You killed the son of God. Can you imagine the sheer terror? Many of these people saw Jesus risen from the grave. Can you imagine the terror of what God might do to me for participating in the crucifixion, the the arrest, the beating, the mocking in the crucifixion of his son? What what would God, what what might, might he do to me? They are gripped with fear in Acts 2 and they cry out to people, what do we do? What do we do? We killed the author of life. What do we do now? And Peter says, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus and God will forgive your sin. Can you, can you, can you sense their fear? What do we do? We, we killed him. Our sin put him there. Listen. Your sin put him there. It was your sin that drove those nails into his hands and into his feet. And you might think, well, yeah, I I, I get it. Like his sin, her sin. No, 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 no. Your sin. The old old hymn, we're going to sing it here in just a second. It says this, it was my sin that put him there. I can hear my voice among the scoffers. It was my sin that put him there. And so what might God do to you for breaking his law and your sin driving Jesus to the cross? It's why the thief cried out to the other thief, the the criminal to the other criminal, don't you fear God? Don't you fear? You've sinned against God. You rebelled against You're about to die. Don't you fear God? And I pray you hear the criminal on the cross saying to you today, don't you fear God? Your sin put his son on the cross. The created killed the creator. Don't you fear God? What do you think God's going to do to you if you reject his son? Your sin having put him on the cross and you reject his son and you stand before him one day. If Jesus is who he claims to be, you should fear. You have a lot to fear. 
But the second shocking conclusion is even though the created kills the creator, the creator rescues the created. Paul would write in Galatians 3 verse 13, but Christ has rescued us from the curse pronounced by the law. When he hung on the cross, he took upon himself the curse for our wrongdoing. For it is written in the scriptures, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. Paul would write in Colossians chapter two, you were dead because of your sins and because of your sinful nature. Then God made you alive with Christ. When he forgave all of your sin, he canceled the record of the charges against us. To tell us, die, it's paid in full. He canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. Your sin, your record, put him there and nailed those nails into his hands. In this way, verse 15, he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. First Peter three, verse 18, Peter would write, Christ suffered for our sins once for all time. He never sinned, but he died for sinners to bring you safely home to God. One scholar put it like this, the just one, dies unjustly for the unjust to make them just. You could never justify yourself before God. You could do better and try harder the rest of your life. You will never justify what your sin did to his son on that cross. Your only hope, your only hope is that Jesus is who he claims to be and you give your life to him. It's your only hope. At our church, we have what's called the City Seven. These are seven foundational truths that remind us of what we believe and why we believe it. And this week, so appropriately, is City Seven truth number three. And the question is, why did Jesus have to die on the cross? And now all of us together, repeat with me, confess this out loud. Since all have sinned and the wages of sin is death, Jesus had to die on the cross to pay the fine for my sin so that I could be right with God. Yeah, that's the beauty of the cross. It's the power of the cross. It's the wisdom of the cross where God's mercy and love collide with his justice and his righteousness so that God through the cross is both loving and merciful and forgiving and just and righteous all at the same time. That's the beauty of the cross. It's the wonder of the cross. It's the wisdom and power of God in the cross. That's why Paul said in Galatians 6, I will boast only in the cross. I've got nothing else. I've got nothing else to boast about. I'll boast only in the cross. The thief on the cross saw the beauty of the cross. He feared God because he had sinned and deserved the death penalty. He saw that Jesus had done nothing wrong. He realized that he was the king and it's gonna conquer sin and death and he's coming again to rule. And he cries out to Jesus, take me with you. Take me with you. Just picture for a moment, (laughs) this thief arriving in heaven and 
Christians who've gone before him, surrounding him and saying, hey man, tell it, who, who are you? Tell, tell us your story, how'd you get here? And can't you just see the criminal on the cross, the thief saying, I, I, I don't know, I don't know why I'm here. I did nothing to deserve it. In fact, I, I did so much wrong that I was on a cross dying the death penalty for my crimes. And everybody in heaven's like, what? Like, what do you mean? Like, we're all here because we've been faithful to God. We trusted in God. Like, why are you here? How do you get to break the rules? He's like, I don't know, man. I, I don't deserve to be here. There's no reason I should be here. But you're never gonna guess who I met on that middle cross. And he said, I could come. And friend, that's the only reason you'll be there. Because you met the man on the middle cross and he said you could come. Would you pray with me? Every head bowed, every eye closed, just a, a moment between you and God. Maybe the most important moment you'll ever have in your life is right now. Because some of you are here and you've been trying to do better and try harder to please God so that maybe one day your good deeds will outweigh your bad deeds. Friend, listen, the scripture says you are a lawbreaker. There is nothing that you can do to please God. You could never be good enough to be right with God. You are the thief on the cross. You are Barabbas. You are guilty and you deserve death. And there is nothing that you can do to change that. And so you have a question to answer. Some of you have to answer this question for the very first time. Some of you are gonna answer it all over again. Do I give up my life in my way for this guy because I believe he is who he says he is and in giving up my life, find abundant and eternal life? Or do I keep doing things my way, reject him, hold on to my life and maybe lose it for all eternity if he is who he claims to be? Some of you got to answer that question for the very first time tonight. Some of you have answered that question. You need to remind and rehearse the answer to your question right now. But today, if you're giving your life to Jesus for the very first time so that you can be forgiven of your sin and made right with God, then pull out that connection card in the seat back in front of you, fill it out, check the box that says, I'm giving my life to Jesus today. And then take that card to our welcome center in the lobby. We've got a team that wants to pray with you and celebrate that decision with you. But God, I pray that right now in this moment, your spirit would move in our hearts and minds. And that God, by the Holy Spirit's power, you would help us to see the beauty of the cross, the wonder of the cross, the majesty of the cross, that you would just remove the, the, the veil or the scales over our eyes all over again, that we might see the beauty and the majesty of the cross where the love and mercy and forgiveness of God meets the righteousness and justice of God. And in that cross, we find freedom and forgiveness and eternal life. Let us see it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.